you know, the next thing you know, your blood sugar is spiked, your uric acid goes up, your body's in uh, this state where it thinks it needs to store fat and you're you know, damaging how insulin is able to, um, to do its job and setting the stage for these issues that we talk about that are related to our food consumption, the chronic degenerative conditions like the heart disease, the diabetes, the obesity, and some forms of cancer that are ranked by the World Health Organization as the number one cause of death on our planet, not COVID. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, David, thanks so much for coming on to Growth Minds. You know, it's good that we stayed in the batter's box. Who knew we had such technical challenges today, but off we go. Off we go, off we go. And we had some uh, some benefits to that restart. So uh, I wanted to start off with, uh, with a chart that you have in one of your books, which compares the ancestor diets with the typical Western diets that we have today. And the biggest difference that I saw is the fat levels. So with our ancestors, about three quarters were consumption of fats in their diets compared to around a fifth, about 20% in our Western diet. Obviously, these numbers can change, but the drastic differences was shocking for me. So what were the changes that have happened since our ancestors um, have, you know, have, since, since their times? And what does this mean for like our longevity and our health? given that we have such low fat levels? Like how does this change our, our Well, there are a couple lessons? of very good questions that you've asked. And, I, and I, I'm hoping uh, this doesn't seem tangential, but I, I want to go just to the notion of uh, food as, as, a, as information. Food is informing the body as to the environment. It's a very important environmental cue. And the reason that's important is because what we're suffering from today is an evolutionary environmental mismatch. What I mean by that is that our DNA has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years with the sole purpose of making sure we're healthy, disease resistant, and that we procreate. That's how species survive. And yes, our DNA, our, gen our, our genes change with time to adapt to changes in our environment, to adapt to changes in food, other things around us, a temperature, for example to give us the very best advantage so that we can survive. So in a very real sense, we're just the, the vessels that our, the DNA uses to allow its survival. But that'll be for another conversation. Suddenly, in the blink of an eye, we've changed a very powerful part of our environment, meaning the food that we eat. And this sudden change by losing out on the incredible value of fat and substituting those fat calories over the past 30 to 40 years uh, with carbohydrate, refined carbohydrate calories, uh, has challenged our physiology. It's challenged our DNA. Our DNA is not in a place that it can now code for the various metabolic enzymatic pathways that will bring about good health. And this is a brand new event in our history, you know, for 0. 0.00 four or five percent of the time on this planet we've been eating processed foods which i think is an oxymoron nothing food about it but really prior to let's say fourteen thousand years ago who knows when agriculture actually began we were eating what we could either kill or what we would find on the ground which our bodies were wonderfully adapted to and i'm not suggesting that's what we should do today you know eat food off the ground or go out and kill things though you know there may not be anything really wrong with that at least from a nutritional perspective what i am saying is the sudden influx of bad signals if you will in the form of refined foods refined specifically refined carbohydrates and what have now been given the moniker of ultra processed foods has been our undoing. Our lifespan has begun to decline pre-COVID, I might add, 
for the first time in human history, that our children are predicted to have a shorter lifespan than we. Uh, that wow. doesn't indicate a genetic change. You know, any meaningful change in our genome takes place over tens of thousands of years. The number that's typically quoted is 70,000 years. But what's changed is the playing field. And that suddenly demonized fat, and that happened about 30 years ago, that we've always eaten, uh, and in its place, refined carbohydrates to make up that calorie debt that people have lost because they have been just very cavalier in excluding all fat from their diet. Now, let me go a little deeper, and that is, it's, it's difficult for me to say that fat is bad or fat is good because it's too broad of a category. There are certainly fats that have made their way into human nutrition that are absolutely threatening while other types of fats seem to be very salubrious. You know, the biggest event I think was in 1911 when Crisco was invented, a highly hydrogenated fat, modified fat, the likes of which human beings have never seen. But that said, you know, iterations of that fat continued. And, and these days, when you walk down the grocery store uh, aisles and see bottles of seed oils on the shelves that are very high uh, in linolenic acid, pro-inflammatory omega-6, you know, that consumption of that level of pro-inflammatory fat is something that humans have never experienced. So we maybe if we have time, we can unpack a little bit what it means in terms of recommendations for fat consumption. I also want to just clarify one other point, and that is, I think what you're quoting is a chart that appeared in a book I wrote in 2013, or actually I wrote before that, but published in 2013, Grain Brain. And uh, the, the important thing, takeaway, is that dietary fiber that we subsequently wrote about in Brain uh, Maker, a book about the gut, the gut bacteria, dietary fiber is, by definition, a carbohydrate. And I think when we're talking about eliminating all carbs from the diet, that's sure an important point because we don't want to eliminate dietary fiber. Yeah, it's a carb, but what we're talking about is this highly processed uh, food diet, highly processed refined carbohydrates that you know make up the uh, about 45% of the calorie consumption for the average American every day. We know that these highly processed or ultra processed foods, their consumption is now related to obesity and diabetes, other chronic degenerative conditions. And as of December 6th, 2022 in the journal JAMA Neurology actually related over an eight year period of time to fairly dramatic declines in, uh, in both executive function and overall cognitive functionality as well in compare groups and co comparing greater than 20% of the calories coming from these ultra-processed foods versus people consuming less than 20% of their calories from ultra-processed foods. And, you know, for me as a neurologist, that's very telling. Why? Because, mm -hmm. you know, the end game for that is Alzheimer's. Uh, sure, there are other forms of dementia. There are other manifestations of cognitive decline. But, you know, that's, that's the diagnosis in about 6 million Americans uh, right now. Uh, by 2050, there'll be 170 million people on the planet with Alzheimer's. So, you know, it, we talk about epidemics and pandemics. That's a, that's a global pandemic for sure. The point I'm making is there's no treatment of any uh, usefulness whatsoever as we have this conversation today. And now we see data that strongly links food, in this case, ultra processed foods, to risk for developing this untreatable condition called Alzheimer's disease through multiple mechanisms, uh, inflammation certainly being one of them, insulin resistance, and therefore depriving the brain of fuel uh, being another. But you know, to get back to your question, what changed industry? Industry and you know the fact that uh, we have industry creating the foods and really taking full advantage of our desires because we like salt, we like fat, we like sweet. Those are survival mechanisms. Industry modifies our foods. In fact, more than 60% of packaged foods on the grocery store shelves in America have added sweetener because we like it. Mm. It's a survival mechanism. You have a sweet tooth, like it or not, you do. I do, everybody does. It's, it's part of the hard drive. That's not an app that got added on early in life because mom and dad took you trick-or-treating. 
it's it's a survival mechanism. We light up when we consume sugar because it tells us that this is a food that might help us survive. That's how it worked until just yesterday, until a blink of an eye in our history. Now our overconsumption of sugar is you know, significantly responsible for the general global decline in health and risk for bad outcomes, for example, as it relates to various infectious problems as well. Yeah, I just want to touch on that because I think uh, whether it's an interview or one of the books that you read, that you wrote, talked about that we were both evolved, like ancestors and our typical and, and our humans today have evolved to seek out fat and sugar. And I thought the sugar part was quite interesting because obviously now we think of sugar as like processed sugar. So it seems like what the difference is, is that cavemen back in the day was only limited to certain foods that they could actually acquire because unlike today where we can just go to a grocery store and get anything that we could possibly want with the tap of a button. Uh, what you mentioned, I think, was that people, the cavemen were finding fat from animals and then they had to find like natural sugar from berries and plants. Um, so is it that humans today and our ancestors, we haven't really changed in terms of what we crave and what we seek out. That's the difference right. is, is the external stimuli of what's available, so yeah. accessible to us. I mean, the desire for salt, the desire for fat, the desire for sugar uh, allowed us, you know, or motivated us to seek out certain foods. And that was a powerful survival mechanism until just recently. Now, with the overabundance of those three components or flavors or tastes, whatever you want to call it, uh, and we're giving in to those desires, then, uh, you know, we're, we're setting into motion survival pathways. And these survival pathways are such that they make us fatter and they make us insulin resistant because those were good things. In, in a time of food scarcity, having a little bit of extra body fat and locking that body fat up so it stays on your body and helps you have a reserve of calories, powerful survival mechanism. Uh, eating, being drawn to sweet foods, for example, uh, activates pathways that make and store fat and also increase de novo or production of sugar in the body and also ratchet down our metabolism, turning down mitochondrial function so we burn less fuel and therefore we have more fuel available. The same mechanisms are involved in allowing our bodies to increase uh, their retention of water so that we don't become dehydrated and actually raise the blood pressure a bit uh, to, as, a, again, a, a hedge against dehydration uh, and allowing our, our blood uh, to perfuse our organs like our brains, our heart, our liver, et cetera, kidneys. So these are all survival mechanisms. What I'm saying is being insulin resistant, having a higher blood sugar, gaining weight, having more body fat, not being able to burn body fat, having your energy utilization reduced, uh, increasing your, your fluid reserve, et cetera, those seems like, like bad things. And today they are, but they're good things in the context of our ancestors who didn't know where their next meal was coming from and winter's coming, for example. It paid, it, it allowed survival when our ancestors made just a little bit more fat and could survive during times of food scarcity, like winter. A bear knows darn well, I don't know how he knows, but they know darn well that during the winter, they're not gonna be able to find food as readily. So a survival mechanism for bears is they say, the heck with it. I'm not gonna be out foraging for food in the dead of winter, I'm gonna take a nap. And they hibernate. But prior to their hibernation, they are making and storing an incredible amount of fat as a way of powering their bodies when they go to sleep for months at a time. They're activating pathways that are basically powered by their sugar consumption. As you watch a bear uh, get ready for hibernation, they're eating, not tons, but many, many pounds of berries day in and day out. That fructose stimulates the production of something called uric acid that triggers their bodies to make and store fat. Now, certain proteins can do that as well through another pathway called purines that ultimately become uric acid. But their metabolism changes such that it's telling them winter's coming. And we can do the same things to our bodies, make our bodies believe that winter's coming. We got to make and store fat. We got to raise the blood pressure. We got to raise the blood sugar and become insulin resistant. 
when we input information into our bodies in the form of sugar. So that, that's a lot. It's a lot to, to work through. But let me back up a little bit and summarize. Our bodies crave sugar because it's a survival mechanism. When we consume sugar, we make more fat. And until quite recently, that was a good thing. Nowadays, with our excessive availability of sugar, we're making fat and storing fat, becoming insulin resistant and raising our blood pressure that used to be a survival mechanism. Right, right. So that's, so one thing that I see missing in this chart is the, there's a percentage there, but the total consumption amount in general is something that I'm curious about. So for example, like let's say an average person consumes 1500 to 2000 calories per day. And I'd be curious to know like if the biggest differences between our carbs versus fat consumption is that just on our typical Western diet, we just eat like two to three times more than our ancestors diet did. Meaning like we actually consume similar amounts of fat that they did, except mm -hmm. that we just added a bunch of carbs because it's cheaper, more accessible. What are the comparisons of like the actual total calories that we have consumed? Right. So, so what you're looking at then in animal studies and in humans are, are studies where you might have two or three different groups and uh, they are experiencing what we call an isocaloric intervention, meaning all groups, whether it's two or three or however many, are eating the same number of calories per day. And what you find is when those calories are uh, more derived from fat, that there is less uh, weight gain and certainly depending on the amount of calories that are consumed or, or perhaps uh, even more weight loss in comparison to those that are eating more refined carbohydrates as making up those calories. We certainly see that uh, in, in the rodent model. And so the point is that this notion of calories in versus calories out, if you just eat less calories, you're gonna lose weight doesn't necessarily play out. The idea is a calorie is not a calorie. There's a huge difference in terms of what we've been talking about in terms of brain signaling and physiology signaling, metabolism signaling based on a calorie of fat derived from fat or a calorie derived from sugar. Sugar puts into play survival mechanisms and fat calories are the currency, if you will, of kind of day-to-day -day activity. That's what we burn. Uh, and, and store generally uh, sugar is what we burn day to day. That's the currency of what we burn and fat is what we mm. store. So, you know, in terms of what we consume, then if, uh, you know, in recognizing that a calorie is not a calorie, there are profound advantages these days for people who are having trouble losing their weight or trouble gaining, uh, getting their blood sugar under control to eating more good fat calories and cutting back on the refined calories. It's really quite straightforward. I mean, this study that came out very recently, as I mentioned in JAMA Neurology, showing you know, dramatic increased risk of cognitive decline in people eating this ultra-processed food. You know, one of the things that that does is it increases insulin resistance and causes the body to be less able uh, to use insulin and all of its various functions, not just for storing blood sugar into glycogen, but actually in terms of how it uh, acts as a trophic hormone or a nurturing hormone in the brain. When we compromise insulin's functionality in the brain, the brain declines. And when it declines, we can measure that. That's why we have to pay attention to keeping insulin functional in the human body. And the simplest thing that we can do to nurture insulin's functionality is to stop challenging it by eating a diet that's going to raise our blood sugar. Mm. Where did this idea of fat being so bad for us? Because I'm looking at the chart, I'm still looking at it, and it's like the, the, the differences of like the fat is so shocking for me and still is. And I just remember growing up, especially in the early days, like in Korea, my grandmother was telling me about these things like we would put olive oil or we would try to eat certain types of fat and she would just warn us like, no, no, don't eat fat. Like you're going to get a heart attack. She would tell us to eat a bowl of rice a day. Like the, 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 the differences of what I perceive to be true now for, for my health versus what I've been taught. And I think what a lot of people have been taught about the negative impacts of like fat 
and is probably telling in terms of what our Western diet is today. So where did this idea <laughs> spread that fat is so bad for us? And I guess who's the one that really initiated oh, this kind of campaign? Oh, I don't want to point campaign? fingers at Ansel Keys on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, but, uh, Ansel Keys did a, a study looking at various populations around in various countries around the world and tried to stratify uh, risk for certain uh, health related problems based upon their fat consumption and concluded that higher fat consumption was related to higher risk of various types of health problems. And industry seized upon that and began, you know, because industry it finds it much easier to make sugar enriched and rich. What a terrible word. Uh, sugar uh, uh, laden products in comparison to fat because fat goes rancid. It doesn't really make for good manufacturing. Right, right. Sugar like cereal that. and all that. Right. So, uh, but, you know, beginning in the late 1960s and early 1970s, in the best journals that we read, you know, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the New England Journal of Medicine, were study after study demonizing fat and doctors began preaching fat is the enemy we began seeing miraculously at the same time the appearance of various low-fat foods you know on the grocery store shelves low-fat cookies and cakes and pies and and uh, you know it became an obsession in america and spread you know to uh, various other um, countries around the world that were kind of following the so-called western diet that fat was, you know, if you ate fat, terrible things would happen. You were at great risk for a heart attack. And uh, it was only, you know, a few years back when suddenly it was realized that, uh, you know, that the laundry, the dirty laundry was aired, that there was an incredible um, relationship between industry and these seemingly peer-reviewed impartial uh, scientific journals that they were profoundly influential through their donations, through their support of research, that the researchers were receiving funds, etc. Uh, because the narrative that fat was bad and uh, sugar was your friend was very attractive because the public loved it. You know, it was eat more sugar and fat was easier to avoid. And then industry, of course, followed uh, and it worked hand in hand. I mean. Um, and it continues. I was recently interviewed a few years back on a national morning program. And on that program, I had just revised a book uh, called Grain Brain, and we did a five-year revision. And the uh, interviewer said, uh, you know, in your book, Dr. Perlmutter, you talk about that sugar consumption is bad for the brain and kind of threatens our health. And uh, then they said, well, but we reached out to the sugar industry and they told us and they made a big graphic right behind me saying sugar consumption in moderate amounts uh, is OK. Science proves that. And I'm thinking, you know, here we are, you know, two decades later and you're still giving in to this because, you know, you have ads sponsored by various companies that have sugar laden products. And I, I said, let's stop right there. You're telling me that your resource for challenging my views on sugar come from the sugar industry. And I said, that's pretty much like asking the tobacco industry uh, at a time when they were telling us we should all smoke, remembering when they said uh, that tobacco was good for our health, cigarettes were good yeah. for our health. And then we moved on. But, um, you know, it, it's up to us then to sound the clarion call that there is an issue here. Uh, there's a snake in the wood pile. We've got to identify it. We have to do our best to, to be uh, as objective as we can with scientific data that is as unbiased as possible, and then give the public what we believe is our best take on the information. And then ultimately, uh, people can make their own decisions. But I think to be fair to the public, they have to hear the other side of the story. So to that end, we wrote an op-ed letter, uh, Dr. Casey Means and I wrote a letter on February 21st, 2021 to President Biden uh, at a time when uh, the, the five-year plan from the United States Department of Agriculture was published saying that it's okay to get 10% of your daily calories uh, from sugar, from pure sugar. Wow. Wow, that's what's published. That is the governmental recommendation right now uh, for the next, now it'll be the next four years. And we said, you know, dear President Biden, uh, you know that 
uh, almost every scientist on that committee indicated that we needed no more than 5% of our calories from sugar and yet. So again, what is the influence of industry on even what our government says and does? So again, you know, I'm grateful that you and I are having this chat today and it gives me an opportunity to let your viewers hear at least another uh, another side of this this story, this argument. Yeah, I mean, the, that's why these open discourses are so powerful because, I mean, just the story that I mentioned to you about the education that I got from my grandma and I, this, this not only impacts the current generation, but because there isn't such a good nutrition education system in high school, elementary, I never took a nutrition class. All of my information came from parents, just like how religion is passed down or just how certain things, cultural norms are passed down. And nutrition, I think, is no different. So because of that, I think this open discourse is so useful for really just getting the facts straight or at least having a discussion on getting different sides of, of the aspect. So um, related to that, I would love to just dig deeper into what are healthy fats, because I still think this uh, public consumption of like what fat is, they kind of related to like French fry oil and that being like a bad thing for you. So that there, you know, if you see any ad around like fat, that's kind of what they're gonna put, right? They're gonna put the, the most nasty types of thing that is related to technically fat, which is you know the worst kind of fat, and they'll just make it such as a general thing, just like the war on drugs that they put mar marijuana with all of these different types of drugs that are very different. So talk to us a little bit about what are the good types of fats that we yeah, should and, be and eating. You know what, what makes it so challenging is nobody wants to be fat, and it seems simple to connect being fat with eating fat, right? I mean, true. Uh, you know, true. We often said that uh, you know maybe we'll just eliminate the middleman and and just apply whatever dietary fat directly to our hips and be done with it. But um, again, uh, fat has always been a central part of human nutrition. Uh, important and and a lot of that was animal fat and we are we do pretty darn well on animal fat you know there's uh there's a sense that oh uh eating saturated fat for example uh it's going to be a health threat well that's not what the medical literature by and large is telling us that saturated fat turns out not to be the health uh, threat that uh, it was thought to be or at least some at least people were trying to convince us it was I think the more processed a fat is, the worse it is for us. I think when you walk down, you know, when you look at the types of fats that people consume, by and large, the most common type of fat, uh, exogenous or, or non-animal related fat would be the seed oils, corn oil, uh, various types of oil, uh, safflower, et cetera, cottonseed oil, uh, soybean oil. These are so common on the grocery store shelves. You know, sitting there on the grocery store shelf for months, if not years, and yet we are kind of convinced that that's a good, healthy oil. There's, you know, a picture of whatever plant it came from on the label. And, uh, you know, we're told corn oil is going to be good for us because it's higher in polyunsaturated fats. Uh, at least that was the messaging years ago. Yeah. But what we do understand is that these fats, these seed oils, for example, are very high in omega-6 fatty acids and that those tend to be pro-inflammatory. They tend to initiate and uh, propagate inflammation in the human body. We'll talk in a moment in terms of why that, that matters. But, you know, there are various ratios comparing the, in my opinion, less healthy, but nonetheless necessary omega-6 oils in comparison to the healthful uh, omega-3s that we talk about as being good for us. And it's been said that you know, the, the general consumption ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 now in America is about 20 to 1. And that what our ancestors uh, consumed was more in the range of 3 or 4 or 5 to 1. And that, you know, some indications were that we would consume twice as much or 2 to 1 ratio, omega-6 to omega-3. So right now it's 20, 20 omega-6, 1 omega-3. That's right. So uh, who knows what is what our ancestors would have consumed, nor do we know uh, what is ideal. But I think we're eating far too much of the omega-6 pro-inflammatory uh, types of fats. It's making for the building of our cell membranes being less uh, functional, 
Uh, it's amping up inflammation in the human body. And we know that, you know, that level of chronic uh, uptick of inflammation is associated mechanistically with so many of our chronic degenerative conditions like Alzheimer's, coronary artery disease, diabetes, obesity, and even types of uh, cancer, for example. So we wanna do what we can to ratchet down inflammation and certainly paying attention to the types of fats that we consume, uh, favoring the types of fats like olive oil, avocado oil, and even uh, fats that are coming from, from animals uh, uh, are, are worthwhile. Now, you know, the question is what about dairy products? Some people have a real issue with casein and I recognize that and they shouldn't be consuming casein. But uh, I think on balance, I far more likely recommend fat from dairy products than I would uh, the standard omega-6 type fat consumption that people are engaged in a day in and day out. And you mentioned, oh, the oil, the French fries and frying in the oil. Uh, you get an order of that and then you get ketchup and put it on. You know, you're getting the fructose, sucrose slash fructose in the ketchup and this oil that has been in that fry fryer, you know, for the last seven hours. Uh, and it's a combination that really is quite health threatening. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't ways of frying foods that are less threatening. It doesn't mean that potatoes are necessarily a bad food. But, you know, there's the devil in the details in terms of how that food is prepared and in what context is it consumed. So, yeah. you know, uh, taking a potato, cutting it up and then uh, cooking it, uh, there are ways of making so-called French fries. But, you know, a lot of the fast food French fries are not, that's not how they make them. They're extruded. The stuff that they make, this big glob of clay that gets extruded through a screen to make it look like it, it, they're French fries, then into the oil that's been sitting there for hours and hours, that does not make for a healthy food. So from a healthy fat perspective, you would recommend olive oil because it has less omega-6, olive uh, avocado oil, I guess avocado in general, olives in general, those are just oil versions of those natural states. Um, like, would you recommend like coconut oil and grass-fed butter as well when you're cooking? That's right, and ghee. And ghee, okay. Clarified yeah, butter, I, organic. I, I've also heard um, that with olive oil, you can only cook it to a certain temperature. So if you cook it too high compared to like uh, coconut oil, which can withstand more, it actually is negative for you. Is that, is that? That's right, you don't want, uh, you really want to pay attention to the smoke point. And that is, by definition, the temperature at which an oil starts to burn and turn into smoke. I mean, yeah. olive oil can be used, for example, to lubricate the wok, because wok cooking is generally two things. It's generally at lower temperature cooking in a wok. And also, you know, a lot of the cooking that takes place in the wok is actually steaming. Uh, you know, what, what you do when you cook vegetables in the wok is you add water, or unless it's a vegetable that has a lot of water, you add water, put the lid on, and you're kind of steaming those vegetables. Unlike what you might get at an oriental restaurant when you have a seemingly wok cooked a stir fry, where you can taste the, that the oils have been burned. You taste it, you know very well. Um, you know, and so it's really what you choose to do. So in many ways, wok cooking is actually steaming. Coconut oil has a much higher smoke point and therefore, you know, is also useful in that regard. But the idea of any food sitting in bubbling oil to get cooked is really something, you know, fat is very, very delicate. It really is very sensitive. So uh, the notion of basically cooking in fat and heating up a fat is worrisome because it, uh, it does modify the fat in such a way that it becomes less healthful. Yeah, the crazy thing is like, I think some, I know people that have adjusted their taste buds to like smoked oils or smoked fat from things like Chinese food because our, our taste buds have just adjusted. So like if they don't have that taste, it's almost like it's not Chinese food for them. And it's hard for them to adjust, like to know what actual healthy food is. It's like kind of our way of adjusting to what we think junk food is or what, you know, tasty yeah, food you're is right. Like so here's what we've got then. We've got a situation in which our brains are hardwired for us to eat bad food. That's the way it is. Why? The brain wants us to eat, let's say, sugar. It, it, as I mentioned earlier, it's a powerful, powerful survival mechanism that has served us for 99.999% of our time on this planet. No, mm. sorry, 
six percent of our time on this planet. <laughs> a lot. Call me on this. Anyway, yeah. The, the, and because that allowed us to gravitate towards ripened fruit. When does fruit ripen? Fruit ripens in the late summer and early fall, prior to winter. Mm. Perfect system. Late summer, early fall, starting to get cold. Fruit is starting to get ripe. We eat that high sugar, starch has turned into sugar food, and it triggers our bodies to do what? Make fat. Why? Because winter's coming. It's a beautiful system. We're in, in uh, right in time with nature, in tune with nature. We make a little bit more fat in the fall because of our consumption of whatever modest amounts of ripened fruit we're able to come upon. We make a little bit more fat, and then during the dead of winter, when we can't kill something or find something, we have a reserve. We survived, and those that didn't eat the sugar don't pass on the, the you know, they didn't have the sweet gene, so they didn't get to uh, survive and therefore procreate. We therefore have a brain that is telling us, eat sweet, eat fat, eat salt, expand your blood pressure. And uh, eating salt is a powerful mechanism because when we eat a lot of salt, our bodies think it, they are dehydrated. The serum sodium, the salt level, goes up when we eat a lot of salt. And that's a signal to the brain that we are dehydrated. When you're dehydrated, your sodium goes up because it becomes more concentrated. And our brain thinks now we can't find water. So uh, it puts into play various mechanisms that ultimately, through, oddly enough, production of fructose and then uric acid, it tells our bodies to make fat. Now, why would that be a good thing? Because when we are dehydrated, this mechanism goes into place and makes our, tells our body to make fat. Why in the world would that be a good thing? Well, the reason that that uh, makes sense, let's look at the camel, for example. Now, you're, you're probably scratching your head right now going, where is Dr. Potter taking this conversation? The most unique characteristic of this animal that can walk for weeks across the desert and not get dehydrated is it has a hump, right? And what's mm -hmm. inside the hump? Water, a big 30 gallon container of water. Well, the reality is that's not true. That's not, it's, it's a unique trick. It's unique trick is if you open up the camel's hump, it's fat. Fat, when we and the camel and other animals metabolize fat, it becomes two things. We, it becomes carbon dioxide that we exhale and it becomes what we call metabolic water. So making that body fat, when our bodies think that they are dehydrated because we are consuming a lot of salt, which triggers the, makes our body think it's dehydrated, which turns on fat production, is how we increase the availability of water because then we burn that fat and we create metabolic water and we blow off the CO2. Look how fat the whales are. They don't find springs and drink from springs underwater. You know, when the, when the hummingbird's getting ready to take this epic thousand mile flight, it's, if you want hummingbirds in your backyard, what do you put there? Sugar. That sugar says to the hummingbirds, physiology, make fat. And when it's ready to make its journey, 40% of its body weight is fat. The hummingbird is fat because it mm. then burns the fat and it's useful for calories and it also makes metabolic water. So it's the reason then that parking yourself in front of uh, the TV on a Sunday to watch the game and, and eating a big bag of salted pretzels is a bad move because that salt raises your serum sodium tells your body it's dehydrated, and that turns on mechanisms that, because of your body's thought that it's dehydrated, to make fat. Because then when you burn that fat, you're gonna create water, because your body thinks it needs it. Now I'm thinking about this genius marketer that I remember at a college bar who would feed us the saltiest popcorns for free. Of course. And everybody would go there, because obviously we just, that's probably the place I order the most beers too, just because I was just so thirsty. And I was like, oh my God, it's free popcorn. You're this broke college student. It all makes sense now. Um, we had that in high school, actually. There was one place that uh, 
would would do that actually and hot dogs too and we were gosh what i was i was 14 in high school so yeah i was 14 so i they would let me in it was great <laughs> <laughs> no fake ids no they didn't need it. they didn't ask for an id though i had one <laughs> Truth be known, <laughs> statute of limitations is over on that one. David Wayne yeah. was my pseudonym. <laughs> uh, I had to memorize it because they would always ask if you ever use it. What's your name and what's your birthday? <laughs> That's funny. Um, I wanted to also because you mentioned sweets. So fruits is is something that I have this weird relationship with. So I had Dr. Stephen Gundry on the show and he's a big proponent and a microphone around not eating fruits like at all. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this because obviously the upside of fiber, vitamin C comes with some of the downsides of, you know, fructose according to him. And I'm wondering if we, cause sometimes I, I always look at like, what are the symmetric risks to reward? Like, can we get the same reward without the risks? And I'm wondering if we can get the similar benefits of fruits, like vitamin C from cruciferous vegetables, like broccoli, cauliflower, oh, you cabbage. Can. Uh, you yeah. can, but let's unpack this a little bit. Um, so uh, Dr. Gundry uh, is a very uh, close personal friend. We've been on each other's podcast multiple times. And it's great that we have discussions because it's so respectful. And mm. uh, I think it's a question of, you know, the amount that you consume. A bear getting rid of hibernate is eating berries all day long, pounds and pounds of berries. An apple might contain five grams of fructose, and that's not a lot. In fact, that five gram load of fructose in the human uh, gut is not even enough to make it to the liver. It's after about five grams that the spillover of fructose then goes to the liver and is metabolized in such a way that it becomes uric acid and sets the stage for metabolic mayhem. So we can handle that five grams easily and it comes packaged in uh, a, a, such a way that it contains fiber, it contains vitamin C, it contains bioflavonoids and all of that, the fiber slows the fructose con uh, absorption. The vitamin C and the bioflavonoids actually work to reduce uric acid. So I, I, you know, an apple a day is reasonable, maybe two apples a day, totally reasonable, some blueberries, there are some fruits like a melon and watermelon, a honeydew melon and watermelon, for example, that are really high er in fructose and maybe have some, uh, but you don't really want to go overboard. But what is not reasonable is the notion of drinking a 12 ounce glass of fruit juice. Why? Because mm. A, you don't get the fiber and B, you're bombarding your body with 36 grams of sugar. You might as well drink the Coke because you're bombarding your body with a sudden onslaught of sugar. You know, it takes a while to, to eat an apple, right? But you can down uh, a glass of orange, a 12 ounce glass of orange juice. If you're thirsty, you can down that in 15 seconds, right? Or, or whether it's, you know, a cola or orange juice or apple juice, whatever it may be, especially if you're thirsty. So that overwhelms this small bowel, uh, small intestinal ability to deal with that five grams of fructose I mentioned earlier. And as such, then that fructose makes its way to the liver where all the, the downstream effects begin. Fructose through an enzyme called fructokinase uh, is ultimately metabolized in an energy consuming uh, series of reactions to form uric acid. And uric acid is the body's alarm uh, system telling the body that winter is coming. That's what happens when you drink a 12 ounce glass of orange juice or that soda, or you know, really go overboard on fruit consumption. You're telling your body to prepare for winter. Uh, you're activating uric acid pathways that increase fat production, that lock up fat and keep it from being able to be utilized as an energy source that actually damage mitochondrial function as a survival mechanism so that we're not using as much energy and we're keeping uh, the energy as a resource that are inhibiting the function of something called nitric oxide that keeps the blood vessels clamped down and inhibits insulin from doing its job as survival mechanisms. And, you know, again, that's food as information. That's fructose signaling your body through uric acid to prepare for food scarcity. 
That's crazy. So would you say that a glass of orange juice or an apple juice has similar amounts of fructose as like a Coca-Cola drink? It does. It has about 36 grams of sugar. And yeah, I mean, you know, here you've been told all these years, you you go to a restaurant for breakfast in a nice hotel, do you want a glass of juice? And they'll stand there with the pitcher ready to go because everybody knows we should start our day with 36 grams of sugar prior to uh, the stack of pancakes over which we're going to pour uh maple syrup and the likelihood of that being actual maple syrup though that's what would you like some maple syrup on your pancakes the likelihood of that being maple syrup it's syrup but the likelihood yeah. of being maple syrup is slim and none uh and then you pour sugar you know high uh highly refined um sugar over your your pancakes and um you know the next thing you know your blood sugar is spiked your uric acid goes up your body's in uh, this state where it thinks it needs to store fat and you're you know, damaging how insulin is able to um, to do its job and setting the stage for these issues that we talk about that are related to our food consumption, the chronic degenerative conditions like the heart disease, the diabetes, the obesity, and some forms of cancer that are ranked by the World Health Organization as the number one cause of death on our planet, not COVID. Wow what's happening there though like if i if i got a if i got like a, a you know six slices of orange orange fresh orange and i squeezed it into a glass would that still have similar amounts of fructose or yes. are you saying is because people add like the the companies add added sugar that that's why as well are. there are all kinds of these uh and i'm not going to use names but they look like orange juice and you see them on the grocery store shelves and I know of one, I'm thinking of it right now, but it's it has some orange juice and they'll say made from fresh oranges. Yeah, right. And then water and sugar and to flesh it out. Uh, high fructose corn syrup is very, very sweet and it's very, very cheap. Um, you know, it was first the, the technique for making uh, fructose from uh, or high fructose corn syrup from corn was actually developed, I think, in 1957 by a doctor. Richard O. Malley at the University of Oklahoma. And it was aggressively seized upon because it's a simple technique. Corn is abundant and cheap and subsidized. Uh, and here's a way of sweetening food and um, you know, getting away with it. People, it's, it's sweet, so give me another glass. I just down that glass of orange juice and orange juice has gotta be good for me. Give me another couple of glasses, keep it coming because you can't stop. Sugar doesn't signal your satiety center. It doesn't tell you that it's time to stop eating and drinking. Fat does. That's the reason that we you know, are so fond of adding fat to all three meals because it really works quite quickly in terms of uh, signaling in your brain that you've had enough, push yourself away from the table. Sugar does just the opposite. That's why, you know, uh, at the end of the meal, um, they serve you dessert and you want to keep it coming. Bingo. All of a sudden you've, you've got that sweet on board. You cannot stop. That to me is probably a bigger lie than what the grain industry has done with cereal or bread because the logical part of our brain would associate fruits as good. Keep, you know, eat an apple to keep a doctor, you know, eat an apple a day to keep a doctor away. All of these things that we've been taught and you put that in liquid form and our brains will automatically think this is something that is healthy for us. Whereas like I could see a lot of people thinking, okay, eating cereal, it's not really good. It also makes you tired often after, whereas drinking orange juice, it gives you this burst of energy because of the sugar right. guy. It is so confusing i think for 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 a lot of people and it i know friends that, but you know yeah. that's why we do our very best to really unpack this and, and 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 let people understand what is going on a what's going on in your body and in your brain in terms of your choices and b how that has been hijacked for financial gain on the part of people who are selling you this crap in the first place so uh you know what happens when you start consuming sweet foods you can't stop. I mean, that's why people binge on Oreos or whatever it may be. Whoever heard of somebody binging on avocados, you know, a high mm-hmm. fat food who been, you don't binge on steak who binges on steak. I mean, if you're not eating anything else, that's all you have. Okay. You're going to eat it, but nobody does, does a binge, you know, nobody's going to binge on, on because that fat, 
in in meat uh, is satisfying your satiety center. Yeah, uh, I want to shift towards what you mentioned before, which is uric acid. You have a whole book around this. I want to make sure we really have some time to dig into this, and then I want to end it off with what we think what 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 an ideal diet would be for someone looking to improve their brain health and just in general, but. Uric acid. So I, I associate uric acid with gout, which is like this very painful arthritis. Um, but you go way deeper into what other impacts it can have on our health. So what is uric acid and what are the things that it's damaging to, to our health? Well, let me start and then I'll backpedal. I'm going to start by saying that uric acid is a powerful alarm signal in the body that food scarcity is coming. It's preparing our physiology and shifting our physiology to get ready for winter or to get ready or to have a hedge against um, starvation. And as we'll learn in a moment, predation as well, in other words, becoming the meal for some other animal. So uric acid is the end product of the metabolism of fructose. When fructose is metabolized, when alcohol is metabolized in the body, and when a certain group of chemicals called purines, which are a breakdown of DNA and RNA found in foods and found in the body as well, then ultimately uric acid is formed. So when we consume foods that lead to elevation of the uric acid, it puts into play mechanisms that increase our body fat, that increase our uh, blood pressure, that decrease our utilization of body fat as a fuel and increase our insulin resistance. So our blood sugar goes up. Uh, and again, a great, these are all good things. We want to get fatter. We want to have a higher blood pressure. We want to have more blood sugar, uh, and as a survival mechanism in the day, but not now. So, right. When we understand that, when you understand this relationship now of elevated uric acid to these metabolic issues that are so central to why people are sick these days, it's a long way away from gout and kidney stones, which is what most healthcare practitioners looked at uric acid in the context of representing that player as it related to gout and kidney. I, I know for a fact, that's what we were taught that, you know, uric acid has to do with gout and kidney stones. Here's the medicine to lower it. Let's move on. Well, you know, this is brand new uh, information that uric acid is related to other issues, metabolic issues. We only started to hear about this in 1898. And the first book on these other re uh, relationships with uric acid was published by Dr. Alexander Haig, indicating that we need to consider the role of elevated uric acid in metabolic issues, in headache, in depression, in cognitive issues as well. Nobody paid really much attention to that until the past couple of decades. In 2016, a really powerful overview study uh, paper was written a collaborative study with Japanese and Turkish researchers. The title was basically um, the role of uric acid in metabolic syndrome from innocent bystander to a central player, meaning, yeah, we've seen elevated uric acid in relationship to blood pressure issues and blood sugar issues and obesity for many, many years. We've known that, but they were calling attention to the fact that it's not just happening to be elevated in these conditions, it's actually playing a mechanistic role in causing these problems. That's wow. profound. And since that time, that was 2016, how it does so, you know, has been teased apart. We now, the mechanisms are very clear. We can get into the weeds a bit and talk about the role of elevated uric acid in damaging how insulin works, in raising blood pressure, in damaging how cells are able to utilize fat so that we keep our fat around our bellies for a longer period of time. But let's simplify it by simply saying it's important then to keep uric acid levels in check. We do that first by knowing what our uric acid levels are, meaning uh, that we ask our doctor, please check my uric acid level. No, I know I don't have gout, but nonetheless, I'm interested to know and I'd like to keep my level below 5.5, not 7.0, which is what most labs are going to say is the cutoff for normal uh, versus abnormal. That relates to mm. gout. 5.5 relates to risk for cardiometabolic issues. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that's so fascinating. And you said 2000, so just about six years ago, we realized that uric acid 
is actually the causation or at least of uh, a significant, um, maybe not significant, but it is some sort of a contributor to a lot of the major issues that we have, like high blood pressure and obesity. It's not just a secondary consequence of these other things that we had. Right. Um, it is a, a downstream event that helps us understand why eating more uh, ultra processed foods, eating more refined carbohydrates, uh, lack of physical activity, um, not getting enough sleep, all these things, there's a uric acid explanation for all of them. It's not the only thing, uh, but it's a critical metabolic marker like blood pressure, like fasting blood sugar, like insulin levels, like triglyceride levels, like APOE, uh, APOEB, uh, or APOB, um, and you know other metabolic uh, markers that we need to pay attention to. It's not the end all, that's for sure, but it sure. needs to take its place amongst those other metabolic markers. Well, I think the majority of the people, um, at least I certainly haven't heard of how important uric acid is, or uric, uric levels are, uric acid levels. So I'm going to definitely check that in my annual blood check. And 5.5 right. is what we want to aim for. Um, this relates to kind of this last question around what you would recommend from just an ideal diet perspective. And maybe we can wrap this around. Sure. What are some of the things that we should be eating to lower our uric acid levels, to have more energy, all of these different things. And I, I, you know, there are a lot of diets out there. There, you know, there are a lot of trends, keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, uh, pescatarian, all, all these diets. And, you know, there are upsides to a lot of them. Uh, a diet that's, you know, the standard American diet, the acronym is SAD, oddly enough, where 40% of your calories are from ultra processed foods. There's something critically wrong with that. I can't get my arms around it. But the other things I mentioned, there are upsides. I like the fact that the diet should have a lot of good fiber. There's no fiber in animal products. So the idea of focusing only on animal products uh, being just a carnivore, uh, I think is threatening because of the lack of dietary fiber. I like, uh, I think vegetables are very important. Fruits and vegetables of various colors with various phytonutrients, really important, helping to bring down uric acid, helping to nurture the gut bacteria, helping to keep blood sugar in check. If people like to consume animal products like meat, I think that's for them uh, not unreasonable, but I think we should limit our consumption to six or eight ounces a day. Uh, other animal products like eggs, I'm a big fan of eggs. I consume them most days. Uh, cheese, I try to make sure that cheese is organic. Uh, I don't have a, I don't believe I have a casein issue, so I do consume cheese. But I think the broad strokes are best evaluated in looking at how you as an individual respond in certain biometrics to the foods that you are consuming. Measure your fasting uric acid level, measure your fasting blood sugar, or even better, get a continuous glucose monitor and know what your blood sugar is doing every minute of the day based upon your activity, not just the foods that you eat. So I think that, you know, as we conclude, it ultimately, Sean, depends on what is your food doing for you and how can you measure it? How wonderful it is that we live in a time where we have answers for that. Hmm. I, I wonder, though, just as a counterpoint to that is, are there some consequences of short term versus long term consequences? Because I know a lot of people that would eat meat, let's say only, and they feel amazing. But I wonder what the long term consequences of that meaning, like, should we always rely on what we what like these short term metrics or no, not at all. Feelings? In fact, yeah. think about it. You know, there are times in our history when that's all we had, you know, in the course of a month or a year. And then there were times that our diets would shift quite dramatically based on what we could find or kill. So uh, I think we have, you know, human physiology is exceedingly uh, flexible and exceedingly resilient. And, you know, a lot of that resilience is based upon the diversity of gut microbes that we harbor, which change quite readily. Uh, in the face of our dietary changes as an ad adaptation, allowing us to be resilient. Uh, and no question, people do feel short-term benefits from any you know particular diet. Going full on keto might help people lose weight in the short term. And there's a benefit to that. And then phasing in you know other types of foods uh, uh, more as a maintenance plan. So there's a time and a place for 
short-term aggressive strict dietary interventions especially when you're trying to put people back on the rails all right well david um i really appreciate your time i learned a lot just from this episode and uh, i know a lot of people did as well so where can people find you online where can Um, people learn let's see drperlmutter drperlmutter.com would be the best place to start and uh, that'll lead you to my uh, instagram site and facebook and certainly the empowering neurologist is our podcast that'd be a great place to go as well Okay, well, I'll link all of that below. Hopefully, everyone can check that out. And again, thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.